this is a game of musical chairs. And there will always be people who are wanting to move from one chair to the next. But you just don't want to be the person that is standing when the music stops. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City, conversations on how we live where we live. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with Jesse Keenan. Jesse's a social scientist. His work examines the relationship between climate change and the built environment. Jesse joins us today to discuss his concept of climate gentrification. Welcome. Thank you for having me. You've been published in a variety of contexts, both popular, professional, technical press over the past months around this concept of climate gentrification. Can you just begin for our audience to unpack, define that term for us? Sure. Climate gentrification is a theory which now has some empirical validity that explains the extent to which instability in economic terms leads to instability in social terms, particularly as it relates to the affordability of housing in response to climate change impacts. And so is climate gentrification a term that, that you've formulated? Yeah, I, a number of years ago, almost six years ago, I was doing work uh, overseas, and I recognized that there were some unintended consequences to some of the investments that we were making in the built environment in the cities um, under the name of resilience. In fact, we had created a kind of amenity. We had created a level of performance um, that was actually increasing investment, but operating indirectly with the unintended consequence of driving out many of the people that the policies were seeking to protect. Years later or some months later with Hurricane Sandy in New York, I recognized that there were certain geographies in Queens and in Brooklyn as well as in Staten Island where certain communities that had a relative advantage in terms of low exposure um, were seeing increased rents. Um, and, and in fact, people were moving from one district to another um, somewhat out of necessity because maybe their homes or their neighborhoods were destroyed. But very often as a, as a function of perception, of thinking about, hey, in the long term, this may actually represent a superior investment. So there's several different pathways by which climate gentrification may manifest. The first pathway is the superior investment. This is people make an investment moving from one area of high-risk geography to a low-risk geography or market, if you will. And this can operate across multiple scales from district to district, region to region, um, displacement in, in South Florida may actually lead to climate gentrification in Atlanta or in Charlotte, for instance. Jesse, would you say your concept of climate gentrification comes out of the empirical observation of sea level rise and storm events? Yes, uh, I, I would include other uh, impacts uh, associated or attributed more formally to climate change, including forest fires, the availability of potable water, um, uh, soil stability, any number of biophysical hazards and um, physical exposure that has an impact on property. So it isn't just limited to sea level rise. And climate gentrification in that conception, while I think we can agree, most rational actors can agree that the climate is changing, anthropogenic climate change, sea level rise, increased storm events will impact the way that we live in the American city. Why gentrification as a focus? Well, classic model of gentrification is really about 
the supply side of the equation. It's about more or less opportunistic developers, um, real estate and investment uh, actors that come in and see value in a particular area, district, or community. And they take that risk and they develop and they create a market. And that leads to degrees of social instability, but also positive externalities and negative externalities. There's good and bad that comes with gentrification. Climate gentrification is different from the classic model in the sense that it's actually representing a shift in demand. And that actually takes the idea of gentrification and, and moves it to a different scale altogether because now it isn't about a localized neighborhood. It's actually about a broader shift in wide swaths of coastal regions or regions that are more susceptible to forest fires and the like. And so we start to see gentrification caught up in demography in climate migration. So it starts to connect both demography and the economy at a much broader range of scales. So the negative connotation, the impact of gentrification on various populations you're suggesting is actually going to increase in scale and scope. There's no doubt. And we're already seeing that both empirically and anecdotally. So this suggests that in the context of sea level rise, increased storm events, not only coastal cities are affected, but ultimately a whole variety of populations are affected. That's right. And there's a number of cities across the United States that actually see this displacement as a competitive advantage for attracting um, what will be a mobile or immobile, depending on how you look at it and think about it, populations and economic base. Um, so uh, what may be the plight of certain coastal areas in the southeast United States may be an opportunity to attract a new population, for instance, in the Midwest. It's a complex array that's very much caught up in the history of economic mobility in the United States. And the implications are, particularly for low to moderate income households and historically marginalized communities, is that not everybody will have the capacity to be mobile, to pay for the cost to adapt. I think one of the greatest challenges or implications of this work is how do we think about those who are trapped? who may be trapped in the future. Um, certainly, there will be some communities that will have an upside to climate gentrification. Their houses will be worth a whole lot more now than they ever have been in the past. But there will be many people, particularly a renting tenure class, that will be significantly challenged to relocate and, and create new lives, livelihoods, places, and communities. Your work is compelling to the extent that it touches on both um the winners and losers, let's say, of climate change, if we, if we could use those terms. Are those terms fair in this context? No, I think that's absolutely fair. And much of what we describe and evaluate is about trade-offs. And so in many ways, the scholarly discipline that we bring in multiple areas of social science and applied science, and as well as design research, is to understand both resilience and adaptation, not as absolute goods, but methodological and analytical domains from which we can understand trade-offs. And so we have to understand that resilience at one scale to one set of people may be maladaptive to another, and that it's the degree of self-interest, um, degree to inequality of resourcing. Um, all of that plays into the trade-offs that society has set for itself in making decisions, primarily what I'm concerned with, decisions about investment and decisions about investment in the built environment, as well as how we design the built environment. The history of the American city um, in terms of economic change, in terms of environmental change, suggests mobility is not always guaranteed to all populations. And in fact, your work points very directly to the vulnerability of fixity in space over time. How do we think about 
resilience or planning adaptation in the context of an economy that is so unevenly distributed? I think we saw the extent to which our history of economic mobility, which has been a tremendous strength through many generations across many economic cycles, um, greatly impaired in the foreclosure crisis in the last housing cycle, the extent to which people were trapped uh, and the extent to which job growth and economic growth was actually happening in cities and places people couldn't afford. We started to give recognition to the idea that economic mobility was a much more complex set of characteristics deterministic or not, that were driven by mobility in terms of class, in terms of education, even access to transportation and healthcare, all are social drivers of how we think about economic mobility. Climate change, as we understand it, is in many ways a threshold issue in the sense that it very often adds both not just the shocks of hurricanes and flooding, but the ongoing incremental stress that pushes us across thresholds of social issues that challenge a broad array of social policies from affordable housing to health care that are all now challenged by that ongoing and additional stress of climate change. In my own work on Detroit and economic restructuring, we see the resultant of populations that didn't have access to that level of mobility. And given that that mobility falls differentially along questions of race and class, this image, this future for the American city that you're describing seems um, quite challenging. I also think it's an opportunity. And I think climate gentrification points to an opportunity, at least in terms of land use planning, because what it reflects is an opportunity to think about density and to think about sustainable urban density that avails itself of the amenities of transportation, of cross-subsidized affordable housing and the like. It's an opportunity to think about how do we create value and how do we redistribute that value to help stabilize not just low to moderate income populations, but also addressing a much broader spectrum of society and economy. And I think in that, we have a collective opportunity for collective action that rethinks the notion of density, uh, rethinks the notion of urbanization, and rethinks what it means in terms of a broad scale of accessibility. Is it possible that the resilience planning tools and techniques we have available today are sufficient to that challenge? There's different degrees of maturity in adaptation planning, which is inclusive of not just resilience planning, but also hazard mitigation planning, floodplain management, design events for civil engineering. It's a, it's a wide spectrum of activities. But really, time will tell um, the extent to which our resilience is adaptive or maladaptive. And this is one of the elements that we have to give consideration to with resilience, is that there's six or seven major categorical variants of resilience. But primarily what we mean is engineering and disaster resilience, which is about a reversion to the status quo. It's about a reversion to the pre-event stimulus. And in that sense, it's fairly conservative. Yet we're challenged all around us to think about transformative adaptation in the way we consume, produce, manage, design the built environment. So we have this conflict between stationarity and transformation. So I think as we get more and more analytical clarity about the implications, both intended and unintended, with a variety of activities in both adaptation and resilience planning, we will start to understand the clarity of the trade-offs. And thereafter, it's really a function of the democratic processes 
of society, of due process, to give consideration to what we want to protect, what we want to preserve, and what it is that we want to let go. And it's that's the transformation that will happen both as a function of demography, demographics, economics, and more fundamentally due process as a matter of electoral politics. And presumably the function of the marketplace as well. Absolutely. And we can't discount that. Um, and I think that that's part of our fundamental methodological ambitions is to understand the extent to which economy is shaping everything from material design and selection to space and location to life cycle analysis to a wide variety of technical but also social uh, implications and bearings on how we design and build and manage the built environment. So acknowledging as you have that resilience is in, in some ways a fundamentally conservative framework and that it's only one element within adaptation, how might we think about enabling civil discourse or conversation about these choices? It strikes me in reading your work that much of it is coming from literatures in certain technical disciplines, you're publishing in a, in a range of fields, and at the same moment as individual actors, individual communities, individual homeowners are making choices, how does that populace become uh, literate on this range of subjects? I'd say one of the more powerful academies that has translated its work into public discourse is climate communications, which has begun to understand these trade-offs and conflicts and begin to translate them uh, to in heuristical terms or just simplified terms that people can understand and relate to. Now, for many years, there's been a lot of research that has translated its way into behavioral economics, into um, public policy as it relates to risk. And it's all about risk and risk assumption and risk transfer. So that world of risk is well understood. But adaptation is not only about managing risks, it's about managing the opportunities. And I think the extent to which we can elucidate what those trade-offs are over the short term to the long term are critical for advancing a public discourse because much of what we talk about now is about infrastructure. It's about material responses that have long-term life cycles. But really, all that infrastructure does, for the most part, is buy us time and buy us time for more difficult decisions that we have to think about, whether it's managed retreat or fundamental land use decisions or whether we're over-consuming space in an unsustainable way. Given the origins of the concept in your work looking at European examples and what you've seen in North America, are you suggesting that there are perverse incentives built in to large-scale infrastructure responses to adaptation? There's no doubt that disaster capitalism has driven the discourse of resilience in a uniquely American phenomenon. There's certainly a severely organized industrial and organizational response, if not political response, that capitalizes on disasters. Part of that is a response that you can't pass judgment on, which is that we haven't fully funded our infrastructure and the operation and maintenance and the capex and the opex of infrastructure. And so we use disasters as a means to recapitalize and make new investments in infrastructure. But part of it is a deeply entrenched American phenomenon of disaster and recovery. And there's no doubt whether it's tax provisions or building codes or any number of institutional mechanisms that drive the built environment and the production of the built environment, we are deeply entrenched with the notion of the status quo. 
We do it the way we've always done it. I mean, if you look at productivity in the construction industry, it's it's by far the biggest laggard in the United States. There's very little innovation that happens in the built environment. And here we are now confronted with the idea of transformative adaptation. So we have a lot of incentives that are deeply institutionalized that um, we're not fully paying um, for what we could or should be paying in the, in the production and consumption of housing in particular um, because it's been deeply subsidized. And probably the pinnacle example of this is the National Flood Insurance Program where the federal government absorbs uh, a fair amount of risk uh, uh, that the taxpayers absorb that consumers don't absorb. We have here in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts the example of the underwriting of flood insurance on the Cape, of secondary homes, a whole series of questions about the distribution of risk at the societal level. Your work has focused recently on South Florida, as you mentioned, uh, Miami-Dade County. Why is Miami or Dade County so seminal in describing this new condition? Well, Miami is a city that was created by real estate for real estate. It was a marketing conviction. But the interesting thing about Miami is that it's reached a certain crescendo and level of maturity where the externalities of a lack of fundamental transportation planning, a lack of fundamental uh, water and wastewater uh, planning infrastructure has caught up with itself. It's reached a certain critical mass and a certain intensity um, that is now leading into the vein of dysfunction. And in that moment, I can now see the fissures and the exposure of these various dysfunctions and how they're reacting in market preferences and particularly consumer preferences. And so in my mind, yes, there's a narrative and there's a storyline with sea level rise and actually rain inundation events actually represent a much more immediate hazard. But in my mind, it's a combination of its own settlement patterns and history and maturity in combination with the confluence of climate change that opens up a lot. And there's much to be explored there. Some would argue it's perhaps too clouded. It's driven by rhetoric, the deep, deep inequality, the economic inequality that real estate has in part produced in Miami um, may actually cloud some of the more precise analytical um, outcomes. But I think in many ways it represents um, the challenges that many cities have, which is how do we protect a tax base? Where do we shift a tax base? How do we think about protecting a broad spectrum of our population? Um, and what's it going to cost us? And how do we respond in a way that thinks about equity, that thinks about uh, fiscal stewardship? Um, we're at that moment where Miami has the opportunity to get it right or get it wrong. We have 10, 15, 20 years. Get it right or get it wrong. Your work is focused on the role of elevation in this context of climate gentrification. Why elevation is an important surrogate here? There's several different pathways. I mentioned the first pathway, which is a superior investment. There's a second pathway of climate gentrification, which is a type of inverse gentrification, where essentially only the wealthy can afford the cost of increased insurance and the like. And finally, there's the resilience pathway by which resilience creates an amenity that drives in speculation. If one of or more of these pathways was developing as a, as a function of behavior and consumption in Miami, it would most likely be happening associated with elevation. Because in theory, the higher elevation you are, the less susceptible you are, either as a function of observation of nuisance flooding or your perception that elevation actually represents a superior investment. So it's really a combination of observation and perception. 
So we tested two hypotheses. The first hypothesis was, was that there was a correlation or a relationship between rate of appreciation and how high a, a property was. We found very strong correlations throughout the entire sample, but particularly strong and it was a big surprise to us along the coast because there's a fairly heterogeneous distribution of flood risk across the county. There's certainly a high areas of a coral ridge north and south of downtown, but it's fairly uniformly distributed in terms of risk because it can flood on the fringe of the county. It can flood in a great number of places. Um, but why was it that we were getting the strongest correlations on the coast. And our theory, which has been validated by other economists since, is that nuisance flooding was driving it in part, but also perception was driving it. So we now understand that the perception of what it's going to be worth in the future is likely the reason we found such high correlations on the coast. Um, the other thing that we tested, which is called the nuisance hypothesis, which is that we looked at properties and we broke them up into one meter cohorts. And we hypothesized that around the year 2000, plus or minus four or five years, which is when the observational studies really kick in to um, suggest that uh, climate change and sea level rises was really actually beginning to have an impact in terms of observational studies. And sure enough, right around that time, around 2000, the lowest elevation cohort completely dropped off in its rate of performance relative to the rest of the elevations, which worked as a pack. The elevation was not that much of a strong effect until essentially sea level rise kicks in. Um, and that represents the first peer-reviewed published evidence of a climate change signal in a real estate market. Um, the implications for um, property taxes, the implications for the public bond market, the implications for a wide variety of investment and public investment um, stem from, from these findings. And in addition to this, are you finding anecdotal evidence amongst the people that you speak with of individual actors making choices based on this? There's some evidence uh, in individuals uh, in terms of survey and interview evidence uh, and data, um, but there's no singular large-scale development that we can say this is about climate change. We really just don't see that evidence. Where we see the strongest evidence is really in individuals who are buying up individual houses. They're buying up small properties. And again, that's a reflection of a change in demand. It's not necessarily a reflection of big, bad, evil real estate developers. Now, that isn't to say that the people who are advancing these very large projects that are that are ostensibly feel like climate gentrification aren't thinking about climate change as a impacting, like this is a real value add now, we are on high elevation. It isn't to say they aren't giving consideration to that, but we, we don't see any evidence that that's a primary consideration. Is it ironic in your view that the history of elevation and class that we see in so many other American cities where the lower bottom land was associated with lower class and along certain race lines. Is, is, it, is it ironic in your mind that that's inverted in Miami Beach? Or? It's not ironic as much as it is deeply perverse as a convention of American history. And it is important that we give consideration to the uneven impacts of that. But we also have to represent and understand that there's other communities throughout South Florida that represent different modes of settlement and marginalization and opportunity. Climate change isn't just about the opportunity to correct historical wrongs, which in many ways it can and should be about, particularly as it relates to sustainable urban development. But 
what we really need to understand is that this impacts everybody, rich and poor. There was an article in the Miami Herald this summer in uh, North Miami where a woman was in a multi-million dollar house and she was facing a couple hundred thousand dollars in fines um, because her seawall had corroded and now her street was flooding. The people who lived around her were ultra wealthy. They had built defenses. They'd built all the bells and whistles necessary to keep seawater out of their yard, out of the street. That is climate gentrification. That woman owns a multi-million dollar asset. She's elderly. But she's going to have to move because she can't afford a couple hundred thousand dollars to be able to fix a problem, which is more or less an infrastructural problem. And the city wasn't going to do it for her. So there's a wide spectrum of impact. And we have to think about, yes, marginalized communities, but we also have to think about middle income communities, workforce housing. We have to think about a broad spectrum of actors who are going to be impacted by climate change. What I'm afraid of is that if we have a singular focus on history as a guiding point for the future, we will lose sight of the full range of opportunities and we will just fall into predictable polemics about who benefits and who bears the burden. When I think in reality, we all bear both collective responsibility, but we all bear collective opportunity. This story, the woman, her seawall, her neighbors, this points out, I think, one of the challenges that you your work points to, which has to do with individual actors making their own choices. We have a widely, widely distributed environmental threat. Each landowner individually responding. Is that really the way forward? Aren't there opportunities for more collective action? I mean, this is one of the challenges that you've seen in the humanities discourse, in both the sort of cognitive perception and in meaning and in, in, in many people have argued in reality from a critical studies point of view, resilience pushes the burden on the individual. And it becomes a characteristic of the individual. Are you resilient or are you not, right? It's a kind of binary election. Do you have the capacity for resilience? And instead, we should be thinking about collective adaptation and collective responses. And in fact, there's many examples, sort of the perfect example of, of elements of resilience that can be maladaptive, a series of individual homeowners who put up flood barriers that promote the resilience of their home. But when the flood comes, it steers water to other properties that would not have otherwise been flooded. And that's collectively maladaptive because it's collectively flooding infrastructure. And it may actually be maladaptive to the, those individual property owners because it may be cutting off services, electricity, potable water to those um, properties individually. So I think the humanities discourse behind resilience and what it means as an individual state and an individualized capacity, um, I think in many ways challenges us. In fact, there's great work by Helen Admondson in Norway uh, looking at the extent to which resilience created a kind of lethargy, a kind of apathy among those that were engaged. And when they started um, utilizing the nomenclature and the framing of adaptation, people started to understand that this was a collective issue, that it wasn't about individual capacity. Um, but it was actually about collective action. And there's no individual property owner who can survive as an island. In advance of anthropogenic climate change, we've seen that the combination of housing costs plus commute times makes Miami metro area one of the most challenging environments, especially for the working class. How do you imagine the effects of climate change will accelerate those conditions of inequity? Or, or are you more optimistic than that? 
No, I think certainly, you know, one perfect example of this is uh, one of the primary impacts we're seeing is greater convection events in the sense that when it rains, it really pours. And those downpours are leading to surface flooding um, that is actually having a, a measurable impact in traffic circulation. Those trip times cost gas and they cost time. And when you think about the uh, labor economy of Miami, uh, many people have more than one job. There's a wide swath, uh, roughly, let's say, 40 to 50 percent of Miami is, by most conventions, economically uh, stressed. If you're losing an hour or two in traffic because of a rain event, um, that's hourly wages that you could be making. So, you know, the implications for uh, economic productivity, but also people's livelihoods, um, are are immediate and they're measurable and they're happening today. And so, uh, we really need to utilize that as a means to think about how do we advance the metro rail? How do we think about more cohesive planning as it relates to uh, bus rapid transit? Um, how do we think about interoperability bind between transportation systems? How do we think about fundamentally where people live, where people work, where people go to school, and how do we give some resolution to that um, so that we can um, not just optimize a system but build robustness there and a certain robust capacity to accommodate a wide range of events? So from resilience to robustness, I mean, these questions seem particularly apt given the percentage of the working class and the working poor that you point to that are involved in the service and the tourism economies. I think for many, uh, they think of South Florida as among the most uh, vulnerable and exposed geographies in the United States. If you talk about the future of the American city, um, in, in many estimations, uh, Miami-Dade County is really, really at the tipping point with respect to rain event, sea level rise, and these massive storms. Yes, it is. But we can substitute those impacts for many other cities. The availability of potable water and storm events in Los Angeles are uh, of equal import and impact. So, you know, these are not unique. Um, basically, anywhere in the United States, as we highlighted more recently in the National Climate Assessment in the Built Environment chapter, uh, there's a wide spectrum. There's, there's really no place in the United States that doesn't have some immediate challenge to climate change. Uh, Miami just is the poster child in many ways, but is by no means unique in many of these challenges. In your research, have you found evidence of a, a slowing or a redirection of development uh, to other areas away from South Florida? A anecdotally, in my own experience, um, my perception is that they can't build it fast enough. And maybe this is in part why you think of Miami as the poster child for climate change. It seems uh, a kind of cultural dissonance. On the one hand, we clearly have evidence of a future of living with water, and yet we can't seem to build them fast enough. Well, we have to think about that those are vertical bank faults, right? They're not really functionally um, uh, real estate in the sense that people live there and they engender a part of a community or a built environment. They're, they're more or less um, assets and, and singularly so. Perhaps a different way to frame it is that this is a game of musical chairs. And there will always be people who are wanting to move from one chair to the next, but you just don't want to be the person that is standing when the music stops. How should we reconcile cultural heritage, community, the values of collective memory and individual experience on the one hand versus the enormous power of these forces that you're describing that might cause us to migrate? I think we need to become more familiar with the language of justice. 
Injustice comes in two forms. It comes in procedural justice and it comes in absolute moral justice. And I think that we need to come to terms with the fact that we have processes of design and planning and public policy that will guide us to have due process, that will give voice to the people who are voiceless, that will give voice to the public, whether it's in electoral terms or participatory planning. But it may lead to an inequitable outcome. And when I say equitable, I mean equitable in terms of distributive justice. That is the notion of distribution of resources equitably across society in terms of access. And we may have a perfectly just outcome, but it may ultimately be inequitable. And we have to come to resolution with that. We can challenge that for what it is, but we have to understand that there are two mechanisms of how we relate and analyze the notion of equity and justice uh, and our role in that and our role that we play as educators, as design leaders, as public policy advisors. How do we help people understand, again, coming back to what are the trade-offs? You're a social scientist. Do you imagine that designers, planners, those responsible for imagining the built environment have a particular ethical responsibility to advocate for more collective outcomes? Yeah, I, you know, it is a it is a interesting thing because the question is, is it a personal ethic or is it a professional ethic? And professional ethics are geared towards the preservation and the self-service of the profession, which is geared towards an agency of a client as to a product. Is there an adaptive capacity within this building, within this infrastructure to be able to adapt to a range of potential parameters? Is there passive survivability in these buildings so that we can have potable water when the electricity goes out or the elderly can evacuate? when there's lack of, uh, of service in the elevators. You know, the question is, are we really going to internalize the monopoly of the professions in service of the public good, or are we going to perpetuate an ethical convention that is geared towards agency of clientelism? And I think that the ethical standards, at least to the AIA and what I teach um, in architecture, um, are geared towards agency and clientelism. But I think that the ethical rules are beginning to mature and they're beginning to create a friction because there isn't necessarily a conflict between environment and economy, that we are starting to see that they're quite synergistic and that we are creating new values through stewardship of the environment that will actually advance the interests of our client, whether they know it or want it or not. And to what extent does this suggest or Im imply a different education for the architect? I think what it implies, not only for architects, landscape architects, planners, and others, is that we need a basic fundamental understanding of the applied science of climate change. We need to understand the physics. We need to understand what radiant forcing is. We need to understand basic elements of fluid dynamics. We need that literacy across the realm. We need to understand what climate change is, how it applies, what are first and second order impacts of climate change in the built environment. That should play into our total understanding and design and selection of buildings. Well, your research is focused most recently on uh, Miami, Dade County. Uh, you, you've looked also, obviously, at New York, New Jersey, post-Sandy. You've suggested that these impacts will be felt across every American city. Are there cities, are there communities across the United States that could imagine to have an advantage coming out of climate gentrification? Yeah, there are definitely cities that have some beneficial attributes. 
And those attributes are not just environmental, they're often a function of governance. There's leadership there. There's people that think about climate change and think about renewable energy, for instance. So a perfect example of this is the extent to which certain local markets have been aligned with local governance to um, reinforce uh, renewable energy production that is feeding into microgrids, that is feeding into cheaper, more reliable, more resilient energy infrastructure. You see this primarily in the Midwest right now, uh, and you see what follows behind that, data center development, tech jobs. It's, it's actually driving an economic base in many ways because it's cheaper, more reliable energy. It's a perfect example of where we are shifting based on a, a combination of climate mitigation, reducing greenhouse gases, and climate adaptation. Um, and, and that's well aligned. And that could not have happened without leadership and governance. You touch on the importance of governance and the importance of leadership. Um, you, of course, have been active uh, advising government on advisory panels and boards at the federal level, at the state, uh, at the municipal and at the county level. Can you say something about the scalarity, kind of the scales of U.S. governance? And at which scales do you find the efficacy of governance? The regional strength of regional bodies, I think, is increasingly being understood as a real politique. There's greater collective will and mobilization of political will. There's greater sophistication in what the sell is and what the buy is. One of the strengths of the United States right now is regional engagement. You know, we have the Southeast Florida Regional Climate Change Compact. We now have one uh, in Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay actually doesn't get a lot of um, uh, recognition, but they're actually equally, if not more, vulnerable than Southeast Florida. Now there's a multi-county compact there. I think it's 10 counties in, uh, in Tampa Bay that are modeled on that. We see multiple, um, the Bay Area Regional Collaborative in, in San Francisco. You see it in LA. There are regional engagement that I think is critically important. Why is it critically important? Because they can start to address housing, transportation, um, um, many of the other attributes of public policy and urban policy. They can start to see it as a system and an interconnected system. And they see the shortcomings and the limitations of, a, of, of any given local government in isolation. And they recognize recognize that their capacity to work together is much greater than the sum of their individual capacities. Jesse, thanks very much. Well, thank you for having me. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. Our producers are Aziz Barber, Charlie Gilliard, and Mercedes Peralta. Music is by Kevin Graham, and Jeffrey Vallade is our recording engineer. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.